You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. And we're beginning with something a little different today. We are discussing Vasim <gasps> Khan's Yay! The Dying Day, the second in the Malabar House series of mysteries, starring the first female police officer in India, Persis Wadia. Mm. Mm. And uh, we're doing this a little differently today in that we are currently coming to you from two different time periods. As I speak to you now... <gasps> It is a few days before this episode airs, and I have challenged Herds to come forth and solve the riddle in chapter 19 of this book Mm. before we progress with our regular discussion in the later part of the show. Now, Herds. Lex, what is it? Am I allowed to unleash the beast? I would like you to introduce what's happening here because I don't want to lead the witness at all. What do you mean you don't want to lead the witness? Oh, no. Um, I mean, look, we're in chapter 19 where, like, partway through part two and like part 1.5. Mm-hmm. And we've discovered that somehow John Healy has ended up with a bunch of words and numbers written on his thigh. So written on John Healy's thigh are seven words. And those words are affectionate, honored, friend, embraces, praised, persecuted, and servant. And then there's a bunch of numbers. There's uh, seven sets of numbers, mm-hmm. and I need to let you know I puzzled for about I want to say an hour and a half, maybe two hours working this one out. It was good fun. The what's time, the what's the line per hour breakdown of that? That's uh, uh not good. <laughs> <laughs> I probably spent longer than I should have on this. Um, and in the chapter, there's there's mention of like book ciphers, and I was like, well, how many books have we had mentioned in this novel? Um, how many of them were, were in John Healy's home could be one of those. We've also sort of already had the mirror. I, rule. I think the clue, the clue to me that stood out, of course, was which book would still be solvable in the modern day, That's, because yes. you don't know how many pages there are in Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass in 1950. Well, we'll talk about that in terms of uh, a, a certain roadblock I managed to hit halfway through this riddle that took me an embarrassingly long, embarrassingly long time to solve. But th- there's only one book in I think the whole world, at least in you know, wet the West that 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 fits this bill as as it were, uh, and it's it's the Bible, it's the King James Bible. Oh, you mean the one um, that John Healy left in the satchel yes, in place of yes. uh, in place of the Divine Comedy? Specifically, Comment. yes, it is. It is in fact that King James Bible, that specific King James Bible. We'll get into that. But the thing that tipped me off in terms of how you could apply the numbers below to a book was that the 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 numbers 1.2 forward slash 1.7, those look like chapters and verses from the Bible. And so I began my journey by trying to figure out if these seven words could be attributed to seven books of the Bible. And so I started off by thinking, well, obviously, obviously praised is Psalms because Psalms is like all about praising God. And friend, well, John was the beloved friend of Jesus. So obviously... Uh, friend is John. You sent me a message around this point in your riddle solving and said that your dad told you you were off base at this part. What what was his response? That's to the thing. I got that far and I said, the, this is what I've got so far. I think these words respond to books in the Bible. I've got these two. What are the other five? Help me out, dad, please. Because he is an elder. So he doesn't get paid for his work at the church, but he's he's respected and, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. He hosts Bible studies. It's a whole thing. And he said, you're an idiot. <laughs> None of what you're saying makes sense. And there's no way that these seven words can be attributed to just one book in the Bible, because uh, obviously a lot of these concepts uh, can be attributed to, to many 
books in the Bible. The idea of honoring, of honoring yeah, God yeah. is, it permeates the whole text. There was a, a page that my, my father linked to me once I cracked the code here that had the meanings of certain things like Genesis meaning beginnings and Exodus. Well, know. there's a whole bunch of them that are named after like people though, right? So thank you. how does Thank that you, work? Flex. That was the the nutcracking moment when I got to Ruth, and Ruth means praised. Moses means like to part the water. You know, there's lots of very convenient one that. <laughs> there's a lot of names in the Bible that have literal meanings that are like phrases, but Jude just meant praised. Hold on, sorry, you said Ruth meant praised. Oh, it's sorry, Jude. Affectionate is Philemon, honored is Timothy, friend is Ruth, embraces is Habakkuk. Praises Jude. Persecuted is Job, one of my main men in the Old Testament. He's a great guy because he gets totally destroyed by God. It's great. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and then servant is Obadiah. From this point on, it was just figuring out how to apply the numbers to the books. Yeah. And the very first thing that I did was that I looked at the, the, the highest number in here. I believe it's 221, which is a huge number. And I realized it was not words in the verses. That would be stupid. So it is, in fact, the characters. So the way you have to translate it is you take the, the there's a forward slash. Yeah. And the numbers before the forward slash is the chapter and verse you're looking for in the book. Mm -hmm. And then the numbers after the forward slash are the characters, numbered characters. One thing that I found out is that if you take just any old King James version of the Bible, the first two words, which I go to, are fine. But then the third word gives you something a little bit strange because we get the word Munsterern, which isn't a word. Mm -hmm. uh, and I thought, you know, that's like pretty close to Munsterers or Munstera. Maybe I've just got like a weird version of the Bible that I've got on the internet. Maybe Vasim Khan has like his own version or something. Maybe there's something weird going on there and it's fine. It's not even a problem. Interesting. But you get to the fifth word and you get gobbledygook if you try to use the King James version. So after a lot of shuffling around of commas trying to oh, that's figure so out. Dirty. <laughs> yes. Well, that's the thing I found out. Oh, no. I need to tell you, oh, this is why no. it took me two hours because for the third word, <laughs> if you take out two of the commas, I could get a word that worked anyway. <laughs> that's what I was trying to do to get this puzzle to work for me because I so, was like, what am I doing wrong? The, the the question I have then is you you got go to moonstarers what what is moonstarern sorry <laughs> go to moonstarern what yep. what was the rest of your answer uh, home spectare sublunar uh, Latin the, the last two words are Latin meaning mm -hmm. look under the moon in the 1950s there was I believe only one observatory at the time Calaba Observatory which is on one of the like southern islands yeah uh, and we have to look under the moon I'm gonna give two slightly varying answers one there might just be a giant like moon statue the other thing that i'm gonna put forward is a little bit more complicated is that the date the 6th of february 1950 is written into the book in the king james bible and i looked it up the phase of the moon at that time was a waxing gibbous moon oh, this, is this might be too far but I'm hoping that there's going to be like a series of plaques or something or like a diagram with a bunch of like stone moons. And then uh -huh. you just got to you gotta find the one that's a waxing gibbous moon and, and take that one out and hidden like underneath the, the plaque will be will be the next clue. That's my hope. This is fantastic. I've, I've really loved getting to hear you. Can I tell you, Herds? 
Yeah. When you told me your dad had told you you were off base, yes. I thought he had screwed you over. <laughs> no, I no. thought he was about to send you on a wild goose chase. I mean, it would have been pretty funny if I came back. It's like, actually, there is a secret moon temple along the banks of the river. Of the what is it, the Duhati River or whatever. Yeah, Look, yeah. I, that'd be great. But I, I think I think there's no point in me denying that you've managed to at least get the answer to that part of the riddle because it's very clean. Uh, but we will be back a few days in our future, but in uh, just a few minutes for you with our regular discussion of the book up to and including chapter 31. So it's 16 to 31. Mm-hmm. So stick around for that. Herds, I hope you enjoy seeing the fruits of your labor unraveled. Look, I, oh, I'm so ready. This is Death of the Reader. We are discussing Vasim Khan's The Dying Day, the second book in the Malabar House series of crime thrillers, mystery books. I don't even really know. Yeah, what do the marketing people say? Can we can we get a get an update from the marketing department? <laughs> We're calling them mysteries, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> You're on to SER. This is Death of the Reader. Stick around. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here with you, and we are joined on the line once again by the illustrious Vasim Khan as we're discussing his latest novel, The Dying Day. If this is your first run-in with the show, uh, and Vasim Khan here is the author of the Baby Ganesh Agency series, the Malabar House series, which The Dying Day is book two of, host of the Red Hot Chili Writers podcast, and soon-to-be editor of The Perfect Crime Collection out later this year, which we'll get to in a moment. Vasim, it's lovely to have you back. Welcome to Death of the Reader. Well, gentlemen, it's it's lovely to be back, and I don't think even my, my late mother ever described me as illustrious, so I'll, I'll take that. That's a big word, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so The Perfect Crime has an astonishing lineup of crime writers, 22 authors from Lagos to Mexico City, Australia to the Caribbean, Toronto to Los Angeles, Darjeeling to rural New Zealand, London to New York. I've heard whisperings that a lot of these collections come together because of people being owed favors behind the scenes. Should we add crime fiction power broker to your CV? How did that come together? <laughs> well, look, to be absolutely honest with you, so my co-editor, Maxim Jakubowski, he had this idea a few years ago, and he approached me to, to find out what I thought about it. We felt, Maxim and I, that it was the right time because so many crime writers of color across the world, even in your own fair fair isles, uh, had come to prominence over this last decade or so. It was about the right time to get some of these voices into a, an anthology. Yeah. I mean, looking at the past works of a lot of the authors in the collection, uh, there, there is a real push for diversity of voices uh, and some incredible stories that do so. Um, other than the satisfaction of a, of a good yarn to seem, uh, is there one thing, a, a lesson or maybe a concept that you hope readers take away from the collection? Well, <laughs> Look, the first requirement that that I set out when we were talking about this with the publishers, HarperCollins, was that this cannot be a a chance for people to to have a go at anyone. So instead, we gave them a simple brief. Write the crime story that you want to write. If readers uh, decide to read this book, what they'll find, hopefully, is a set of stories that uh, not only cover lots of different cultures and, and communities from across the world, but hopefully uh, stories that, uh, that appeal to them as crime readers. And they won't like every single one because, you know, when you have an anthology, no one likes every single story in an anthology, uh, as long as they, they like my one. That's the important thing. That's <laughs> <laughs> the only reason I did it. Yeah, well, I mean, you've titled it The Perfect Crime and the classic mystery fan inside of me like yearns for a good challenge there. Are there any twists that caught you off guard the first time you got to read the stories that were sent in? 
Uh, look, if I if I start mentioning individuals, I'll probably get a barrage of letters from their lawyers because some of these, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, living legend Walter Mosley, the, the, the you know the creator of Easy Roll, Rollings, which later turned into a great Denzel movie. Let's be honest; it's um, to get a collection of writers of such prominence and, and new writers who are gaining prominence together in one collection. The only way that you can do that is certainly not because of my charming personality. It's <laughs> <Don't> sell yourself <laughs> short. <laughs> It's because they felt that there was some merit and they wanted to be involved with what I hope will be a seminal seminal collection. So there are some great twists and turns in amongst those stories. Yeah, well, let's jump into the Malabar House series. The first thing I wanted to talk about is Persis, because I think she's a really wonderful character for exploring the newly independent India, because she's at once fiercely principled, capable, but also sometimes a little blind for the consequences of her actions. Why was it important for Persis to share so many of the faults of the nation while struggling against them? Well, um, so Persis is, uh, for those of your listeners who, who don't know, she is India's first female police detective, the first woman to qualify. And she's based at a small station, Malabar House in Bombay, as it was then known. And this is where all the misfits and rejects are sent. Uh, she's sent there because she's a woman and nobody wants to work with her. And this automatically puts a chip on her shoulder, obviously. And she wants to get away from the whole demure Indian housewife doing what she's told. Although I have to be honest, I've never met such a such an Indian character. <laughs> so Persis is very much uh, an individual. She's very much someone who's not perfect. Her social skills sometimes leave something to be desired. Uh, and largely it's because she's so wrapped up in this idea of making progress in a man's world, knowing mm. that right from the first day that she's entered the force, most of the people there are set against her, uh, that she is, as you rightly say, sometimes blind to her own faults. Now, I, I did want to jump into the the MacGuffin of the story here, the uh, the Divine Commedia. Um, now, I'm a little shaky on this one, but as I understand it, the origin story for how this book ended up in the in the Azag Society's hand is a little, a little hazy in real life. Um, but you pose a version of events in the novel regarding its carrier fleeing an uprising, um, without it, did my research go awry? Was there a particular reason you chose to sort of invent a bit of history there? You say invent a bit of history, but the fact is that the, there is this incredibly old copy of the Da Vinci Code, and it read. Yeah, yes, and, and this is a great. I mean, I've actually visited. <laughs> Sorry, Vasim, I, I enjoyed the slip up there where you said the copy of the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> yeah, the Da Vinci there. Code, the, the Asiatic Society. <laughs> that seems right to me. Dan Brown's getting so ahead of himself. <laughs> I, can, I can explain that slip. I, I guess we'll talk about the, the yeah, yeah, a little bit later on. So um, all will be forgiven, listeners, dear listeners, <laughs> when, uh, when when we get to that. Uh, but um, I visited the, the Asiatic Society when I lived in in Bombay, and it's this treasure trove of fantastic ancient artifacts. You know, you've got a Shakespeare first folio dated from the 1600s. There, you've got a copy of uh, A Voyage Around the World by by James Cook. And the divin and the there it was again. Do it again there. <laughs> and the divine comedy was the one that really fascinated me. Go and then when you say that I've invented the way that it's managed to end up there, yeah, uh, you're yeah. right to a certain extent. My research suggested that it had it had ended up there by virtue of a Scotsman named mm. Mont Stuart Elphinstone, and he was a former governor of Bombay. And I, I can't remember the exact route that it uh, used to find its way to Bombay, but once it was there, it has since been such an enormous treasure that the Indian and Italian governments have basically almost come to blows over it. The Italians want it back. Mussolini once offered a million dollars for it back in the mm. 1930s, and the Indian government refused. And so for me as a crime writer, I thought, you know, you've got this incredibly valuable 
valuable item, how can we um, how can we construct some murders and, and things around that uh, to try and make it an interesting plot for a novel? Uh, Vasim, you mentioned the, the last time we spoke that there were many refinements that you had to make uh, to get the riddles in the dying day right, uh, just right even. Uh, and we really enjoyed the lessons about Indian history that was smattered throughout. How did you test the riddles to make sure their progression of, of difficulty uh, was satisfying for someone putting in an effort to solve them for scene? Uh, well, I banged my head against the wall quite a lot. That's a good one. <laughs> That's imagine. a good start. Uh, look, you, you, I, I made a slip up earlier where I called the uh, the Divine Comedy the Da Vinci Code. Um, mm-hmm. So I, you know, I'm, I freely admit that that was a. Uh, uh, an inspiration for me. Now, I know that uh, The Da Vinci Code is not everyone's cup of tea. I personally quite enjoyed the books when they came out, and I wanted to do something similar, but set it in this, this Indian context. So for me, I would continually go back and reference them and see, you know, what did Dan uh, Dan Brown do with his riddles that made them so effective, that kept me turning the pages when I originally read The Da Vinci Code. And the answer for me was was twofold. Firstly, the damn things had to rhyme which really caused me a lot of angst. It's, it's, you know, it's not super difficult to create a riddle. It's quite difficult to make one that, that rhymes and also serves your purpose. And that purpose was the second element. So each of the riddles had to point to real things in Bombay. So I couldn't just make up institutions or artifacts that had never were, or, or were not at all remotely possible to have been in Bombay. So that was a really difficult thing. Well, the second riddle is, is the one that I really wanted to hide, the one with the, the letters on the thigh of John Healy, which is an insane puzzle, by the way. I thoroughly enjoyed solving that one. Oh, my goodness, yes. Uh, we have to ask <laughs> about the commas. Yes, that's what I wanted to ask about. That's where I'm leading into. So here's the thing. This, this is why I'm interested in the progression of difficulty here, because the way that I tried to solve it right, uh, I used just the regular what was it? The, the revised King James version of the Bible, whatever it was, it's just the name of the Bible in the book. I tried to use that to solve it. And I got the first two words fine. And the third word came out Munsterern. And then of course, when we got to the fifth word, it was gobbledygook. So the, the thing, the thing that Herds and I both noticed, right, is that for the, the last two words, uh, t- the two longer words in that riddle, the mm. first letter is like right at the start of the chapter. Yes. And then there's like a gap of something like 140 characters which means that the more different your version is, the further the off you get. Yeah. And I looked at that and I went, oh, that's really interesting. I wonder why Vasim Khan did that. But I happened to use the yes. right version, so I just got the right one. Herds ended up with- what points to Felix? Yeah, Herds, Herds ended up with complete garbage- and when I say he 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 actually figured out what the problem was and managed to I correct did. himself, which I'm honestly more impressed. Stop giving points to with. Felix. Stop giving <laughs> it to him. He's he's read the whole thing. He's the ex. I'm the one solving it. I have to be honest though. I, I am impressed that uh, that you that you managed to solve that one because that Thank is a you. very easy puzzle. And, do I get um, points? You get you get five. Points. I've already given yes. you your two points for it on this episode. <laughs> if you actually solve that without getting to the answer. Uh, And and the same goes to any of your listeners who read the book. Uh, And especially if you're seasoned crime readers, you might have some inkling of how to solve it. But if you do solve it, I will be very, very impressed. Yeah, I I should say, Hertz has one riddle left to go in the book, but I have been so impressed with how he's managed to go through and solve all of these. These riddles annihilated me. 
I took like a week or more to solve each of them. Herds comes around and he's like, oh yeah, I finished it by the end of the page. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, I said two hours, two hours for the second riddle. In my defense, um, I used a particular version. This, no, this isn't in your defense. This is in your compliment. This was a no genius defense. part of the riddle. I love it. It was great. Well, I'm a huge fan of history. I'm a huge history buff. And mm. just going through the history of the Bible for for a book that is, you know, the biggest selling book of all time, probably, for, for, for so few of us to know its actual history and how it came about. Uh, I found that illuminating. And I, and I, I think I did a, a, a bit of a dump uh, on a page within the, within just, just to create some context around, around it. Uh, and I found that hmm. fascinating. All righty. Well, it, is, it has been a pleasure, uh, Vasim, speaking with you again about uh, your incredible work. The Dying Day in Midnight in Malabar House has been an absolute treat. And thank you once again for joining us. Gentlemen, it's been absolutely wonderful to be back. Uh, two things I will end with. Firstly, mm. we shall never mention cricket or the ashes ever again. Please don't. I don't know what you're talking about. Don't do it. And secondly, can I tell you my favorite uh, favorite Novak Djokovic joke? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Why, why did Novak have to pay for his flight to Australia with a MasterCard? Don't know. Because his visa went cancelled. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, God. <laughs> you're listening to Death of the Reno. We are talking... With Vasim Khan, author of The Dying Day, part of the Malabar House series. We will have links up on the podcast to all of that work and more. And be sure to keep an ear out for The Perfect Crime, which we'll be definitely talking about when it comes out later this year. This is Death of the Reader. We are still discussing The Dying Day by Vasim Khan right there. Stick around. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here. Hello. The Dying Day. Part two, chapters sixteen to thirty-one. Well, I mean, it's kind of like uh, twenty to, to thirty-one at, at this stage, considering we had a little, a little intermission well, yeah, section. Yeah. But yeah, <laughs> it's it's kind of a bizarre doing the doing the show like it's this. Fun. But uh, yeah, technically we are covering. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun to break things up. But yeah, we are doing the middle section. It's been a, a few days since you last heard from us, and I've gone uh, insane in the meantime. So I've heard. I've gone down a rabbit hole. I haven't gotten any sleep. I'm all twitchy <laughs> because I've realized the full scope of this novel. Oh, no. Um, not not that I think that Basim is, is being particularly coy about it. Because as Aaron Lockhart so so quaintly puts it. Quaintly? Qu- qu- quaintly. It, it belongs in a museum. Yes, yes. She says, gesturing to all of India. And it was at, it was at this moment I realized that we were dealing with something akin to an Indiana Jones plot. And you know what the best oh, no. the best culprit of an Indiana Jones plot is? It's it's the Nazis. That is correct. That is Because of course it is. Arch, I mean Kate Blanchett, <laughs> definitely the best antagonist that Indiana Jones ever had. Mm-hmm. Let let's be clear before you take too much credit here. There is an entire <laughs> passage talking about yes. how Francine Kramer's child was confiscated yes. from her by, by the Nazis. Nazis and never seen again. <laughs> yes. Um and also about <laughs> here's the thing. I'm not actually I don't actually feel that smart for, for putting all this together because they basically spelled out for you. Yeah. Thank you, Vasim. But apparently, uh, John Healy was kept in a Nazi castle. What? Apparently, he was taken away after the first month of his yeah, yeah. in the book's 10 month stay in this castle. I'm going to perform the crazy, crazy theory that he was made to work on this 
d- divine commedia uh, that he was trying to translate it either into German or- So he's like yeah. continuing a project for the Germans at this point? Was translating the book for the Nazis. Mm-hmm. The war ended. I'm going to put forward the idea- The theory. That it was say. in fact John- The theory- the book theory that John Healy was the one who brought said Divine Commedia uh, to to India, and he's been like almost like safeguarding it or like watching over it. Uh-huh. Um, and one day, a Nazi showed up and said, "Hey, we want you to get that book for us now." Now, Herds, I don't know if you've checked Uh-oh. the date Uh-oh. at the start of this novel. Oh, it takes place in in nineteen fifty. Yes, just after the New Year, and uh, Nazi Germany is over. Sure. But there could still be Nazis, like, hiding out. That's because you've, you know, over to Nazi what Germany. Are they, what are they tracking down a copy of the Divine Comedy for if they're, if they're on the run from the authorities in the Nuremberg trials? Look, just because you think you've defeated the the empire of of the Nazis doesn't mean they're not going to create some outposts in the, the outer rim of Europe, you might call it, and continue their escapades. Well, yeah. The, Look, the other thing, we haven't really spoken about character because of the riddle section earlier in the show today, Herds. Yes. But uh, Zubin Dalal, the ex-lover of our protagonist- He's such a mysterious character. I mean, I hate he's it. a mysterious character, but also I, I thought it was like a really weird way to introduce that with Zubin stalking her because it so mm-hmm. enormously sets it up as an angle for the mystery. But I don't know about you, but thus far, I don't really see any hooks to tie Zubin to the rest of the story. It's, I mean, it's gross and weird, but it would tie in with uh, sort of the way that she treats uh, Fernandez. Yeah. Where yeah. she's like, I really don't respect you at all. I don't like you, but I work with you because we're here to get this job done, that sort of thing. And he's not mm. a complete idiot. I mean, it, it has been interesting over the course of this while we've seen her, like, you know, go into the nightclub and do the interrogations mm. there, like, basically under Fernandez's nose. Even though they're still very much undercutting each other, there's, like, a returning begrudging respect between Fernandez. <laughs> respect is a strong versus- word, but, yeah, like, they, they have to acknowledge that they are both cops in India and they're the ones that are on the case and no one else is going to solve this. And it sounds like this... The Zubin fellow is going to come along with some this additional scale reveal or some missing piece of the Nazi puzzle. This sounds kind of weird, but like I feel he's going to be working with like <laughs> the British like spy network or something oh, like that. Oh, he, he's there after the Nazis working with the that's, British. That's my suspicion. That's my suspicion. I, I want to talk about one uh, one other thing. Just no mystery. Uh-oh. Okay, no no guesses and, and theories here. Can't you, stop you, me. It's outlawed. And that is the, the run-in that we have with Francine's, like, therapist, doctor character. <laughs> he's very blunt. Mm. And I, I don't know. It was, like, it was weird because- I, I describe the things he says as whack job, but it's more just like, I guess they're really uncomfortable. They're really confronting. Him talking about like, yeah, like <laughs> why people stay in abusive relationships yes, and that sort of yes. stuff. It's and bizarre. I, I thought it was a really interesting scene to put Persis in because obviously one of the premises of the Malabar House series is the trauma that India is going through mm. and why perhaps India stayed in an abusive relationship for so long. There's a fair few things that happened in the last couple chapters of the book that I was like, wow, we're really going there. I mean, there's, you know, when she gets assaulted by the masked man and she's like, well, this is it. This is where I get assaulted. 
Yeah. Great. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a fair few scenes that deal with sexual violence uh, with the therapist and, and with uh, Persis in this scene. And obviously, like- Yeah, and those scenes were back to yes. back too, now that it's, you mention it, which was yes. like nuts. It's very deliberate. Um, I can I can see that that the scene is trying to highlight this aspect mm. of relationships and of of you know these these are realities that people have to deal with and it's violent and awful and disgusting. Yeah, yeah. I I honestly I don't like I don't know if I like like it. I feel like I want to get to the end of the book to formulate a, a proper opinion on it because it definitely, as you say, it feels very uncomfortable. And I suppose also like I understand this a lot less, but the partition Mm. of India it's called where like, and all of those like cultural animosities coming together. It's like a a similar part of that same whirlpool of trauma that the country went through. Mm. And it's not to say that the book itself has been like light on dealing with heavy subject matter, but it just kind of like really piles it on uh, kind of abruptly in this stretch. And as I said, I like logically enjoyed the connection there, Sure, but (laughs) <laughs> it was kind of a lot still. I mean, we've been building to it ever since when like Lockhart's talking about all these, you know, we, we want to take your artifacts away from you because we think you can't handle them. Yeah. Like- yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was so interesting too. Like the Smithsonian as a character via Aaron Lockhart in this story. Sure. Sure. Um, is it's very clever. Is, is a mm. lot of fun because I don't know if you've been to the S- Smithsonian yourself or anyone listening. I don't think so. It, it is one of the most like, propagandish museums I've ever visited. Mm. And I felt that Erin was a really good portrayal of that, where the things she's saying, she is oblivious to just how nuts they sound. Yes, we're going to take your toys away from you before you break them. Yeah. I No, I really enjoy her actually as a character. I enjoy how completely ruthless she is. There's quite a few characters I think, in the book that, that fall into that. That umbrella, which is which is nice. We should uh, we should talk about that more uh, next week and the last week of the show. Herds, there is one more riddle for you to solve. Good, let's do it. We're not going to be doing a uh, a, a cutaway like we did this week because I think it's a it, it's a bit <laughs> less conducive to that same thing. But I would appreciate if behind the scenes, send you notes. We yeah, you send me your notes. Maybe we still record a bit that we can put up on the podcast or something aside from the main episode of the show. Sure, sure. We will be going chapters thirty-two to the end of this story. It's a good time. Ooh. I'm excited to chat about it. Hertz, congratulations and good luck. Let's go hunt some Nazis. Let's go. I'm in. This is Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour. We are discussing Vasim Khan's The Dying Day. We'll be back with the last portion of that discussion next week. See you then.